Ah, is it included? Have you I haven't included it. It's not in my, be- in my best. I think ah, it, it, ah. it possibly would fall into the, the worst category. Okay. Well, uh, hello, hello, everyone. Um, this is the sixth Scotswayhe podcast. Uh, this week, sponsored by Lemsip. Excellent. Um, I have with me today uh, Ronnie Young. Hello. And again, a regular contributor, Chris Ward. Hiya. Um, before we begin... Um, anyone get anything that they want to plug out there that they're involved in? Oh, all right then, since you pushed. Um, <laughs> since, since I think it's only fair because yeah. you're never getting any money for this. I know. Since uh, we, we last recorded this Girls with Hate podcast together, I have started up my own, uh, which Ali was kind enough to guest on last week. And, yes, uh, exactly. Pod released itself. Yeah, pod released <laughs> itself. Oh. Yeah. oh. <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> banned from all future episodes. More, more, more puns. Yeah, yeah, more I've been working puns. on that for a while. But yeah, no, uh, seniorvideopod.com. That's seen, like, as three separate words, senior video, not senior as in elderly or senior as in Hispanic, which it's already been misheard as several times by various parties. But uh, it's up there and there's a few episodes up there. Like, right. But that, uh, let's get this business of show out the way. And okay. <laughs> move on to the real meat. Okay, and as I say, we're all, we're all suffering a little bit, so this is probably going to be a reasonably bad tempered one if we start to uh, disagree strongly. It is, in a similar way as we did, we came up with the top five Scottish films. We three are going to try and end up in about an hour or an odd time with the top five Scottish Novels not voted for by the public. Five, not voted by the public. There is no voting apart from between us. Um, and I've got the list here. So I will... Well, no, I think, Chris, if you read yours out first, and I will go last. I think that's what Okay, fair. in no particular order, uh, I want to stress that. I have uh, Lanark by Alistair Gray, uh, Heart Midlothian by Walter Scott, mm. uh, Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson, the Private Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner by James Hogg, The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie by Muriel Spartan, either uh, Sunset Song on its own or The Entirety of the Scots Square by Lewis Grassett Gibbon, uh, The Bus Conductor Hines by James Kelman, uh, The Bridge by Ian Banks, The Trick is to Keep Breathing by Janice Galloway, and The City of Dreadful Night by James Thompson. Oh, controversial stuff at the end there, but we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. Okay, Rory, what about your top ten? Okay, I'm, I'm going chronologically here. The order starts with the earliest. It's Tobias Small. It's the expedition of Humphrey Clinker. 1771. Um, so Walter Scott's Waverley, Hogg's Private Memories and Confessions of a Justified Sinner, to Robert Louis Stevenson, I'm going to go with okay. the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and also the Master of Ballantry. Um, then, jumping ahead a wee bit, uh, George Douglas Brown's The House with the Green Shutters, no sunset song. Uh, Miro Sparks, the prime of just me, uh, Mr. Just me, brother. There's a novel. Aye. Sorry, the prime of Miss Jean Brodie, Arthur Gray, Lanark, Janice Galloway, the trick is to keep breathing, and, well, I Ian Banks again, but The Crow Road this time. Oh, so. eh. Okay, well, mine are, uh, I've gone for The Great Waldo as well, so Walter Scott, but with Rob Roy, <laughs> so we all have three different yes. Scott. But we also all have James Hogg, The Private Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner. Mm-hmm. I've gone for a Stevenson, and I've also gone for The Master of Ballantrae. It's a dead heat. And then I've gone for Alexander Trocky, Young Adam, mm-hmm. which I'm surprised no one else has gone for. We'll get on to that in a minute. I haven't read it, that's why. Oh, <laughs> oh well, <laughs> there you go. That's yeah. your prescribed reading for next week. <laughs> the Prime of Miss Jean Brodie, um, Muriel Spark, a good old Mr. Grey and Lanark as well. 
I've gone for a Kelman, but I've gone for a disaffection. Then I've also gone for Janice Galloway, The Trick Is To Keep Breathing, and I'm interested that we've all done that. Then two personal favourites, which I didn't expect anyone else to have on the list. Ron Butlin, The Sound Of My Voice, and I think a lot of people know how strongly I feel about that. And then, representing the chemical generation, if you like, um, Alan Warner's These Demented Lands. Um, And if we have time, I'll tell you why, but we might not have time. So let's... Let's have a look at some of the books which... Uh, well, let's start with the, the granddaddy of them all and mm-hmm. we'll try and come down mm-hmm. on which Walter Scott we could have in if we are going to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, why did you choose the H of M? Uh, well, first off, because it was the first Walter Scott that I could make it all the way through. Uh, I think it was the kind of thing... Obviously, <laughs> that, that is to, not a good that's not. No, that, that was the first reason. It's not the only reason okay. um, that I kind of started... I progressed with Walter Scott. I started with Waverly and got about a third of the way through before time constraints and various other things made me give up. Uh, with Old Mortality, which was the second one I tried reading, I got about two thirds of the way through. Uh, and so I feel like I was progressing a third at a time with every book. So it made okay. logical sense that I would finally complete Heart of Midlothian. But I think um, there was obviously like an impetus and a drive there for the first time to actually finish the book, which I think is not, you know, something not to be understated. With no, Walter Scott, they're pretty definitely. hefty endeavours. Um, but I think it's, it's such a kind of. I don't, want to, I don't want to say state of the nation novel, but it is a very kind of... Um, it, it feels even more epic than, than a lot of Scott does. I mean, a lot of Scott is epic in the sense of, like, you know, mm-hmm. that you might describe, like, a Hollywood film as epic because there's lots of soldiers and cast of thousands and stuff like this, but uh, Heart of Midloathing, you know, starts with, like, a city-wide riot, yes. lynching, whatever yeah. you want to call it, mm-hmm. and then broadens the scope from there until you have, you know, Jeannie Dean's walking to London, you know, and taking in the entire country. Uh, to try and seek a pardon for her sister. But um, I think throughout all of that, what makes it great is that it maintains this epic scale, but it never loses that kind of focus on, on Jeannie herself and the character of Jeannie and that kind of intimacy. Mm-hmm. And the way that he manages to bring it back at the end into this kind of scene of domestic bliss mm-hmm. yeah. uh, after all the kind of trauma and you know all the kind of uh, violence and everything that goes before and all the kind of hardship that Jeannie has to go through uh, to then bring it in at the end for... Again, not not necessarily like an out and out happy end, but one that's that's contented and one that's settled and has mm-hmm. this kind of, you know, this this own vision of happiness. This very Presbyterian happiness, but you mm-hmm. know, happiness nonetheless that she, that she manages to find from her experiences and the fact that he's able to bring that all together and tie in history and tie in historical characters and stuff like this and tie in actual events in Edinburgh mm-hmm. and never lose that focus on Jeannie and her own kind of personal journey. I th- I think is um, I don't know. I just I, it connected with me more than. Uh, more than the other Scots that I've read. Mm. The, it's a while since I've read it. Um, there is a kind of strange ending, isn't there? I mean, there's yes. the, 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 kind of the west coast of Scotland and the Highlander and the Lowlander. Yes. And, this yeah. and clash. The, the Duke of Argyll arranges the, the, the scene of domestic bliss and yeah. uh, everyone's happy apart from Effie, I think. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, it's a really odd ending. Yeah, it's got, yeah uh-huh. I remember it as being some, yeah. it, as if he had finished it and then went, oh, but I've got a bit more to say. Yeah. And, went, and, and I actually find that very interesting, the yeah. end of it. Mm-hmm. And I agree with you. That Rob, the reason I went for Rob Roy was a similar thing. It uh, dealt with, um, a very personal thing, really, dealt with actual places and people uh, as well as having this huge mm-hmm. romantic ideal mm-hmm. of Scotland, one which fed into, whether you like it or not, you know, right up down to the present day, we still have this kind of Rob Roy picture of what the Highlands... Um, where, um, but also for the time, very modern, talking about uh, the Glasgow High Street going up the cathedral. Um, mm-hmm. It was great to be able to picture the p- 
people and places mm-hmm. that he was actually dealing with at the time. And again, borders as well. It, it, it really is. What Scott did perhaps better than anyone has ever done is to look at Scotland almost as a whole, almost as a whole, mm-hmm. and um, make comment on the differences between them. Now, some of them might have been romanticised beyond all belief. They probably were, mm-hmm. but it still was doing that. It mm-hmm. wasn't narrowing. It was a huge outlook. And I wonder if his success um, actually stopped people doing that later. It's like, well, he's done that, so let's not bother. Mm-hmm. So Waverley, why... Well, I think it's Waverley because his success didn't stop people. It's because uh, Scott's success meant that he was key in the development of the, the novel uh, throughout the 19th century, of course, in the genre of the historical novel. Mm-hmm. People went on and took on Tolstoy Wars and Peace, etc. Yeah. You know, but I meant in Scotland they seem to not to take it on, but you, maybe well, I'm wrong about that. Well, I, I think um, there are various reasons for that, possibly. You know, the, 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 the Scotch novel was fashionable for a while and then became unfashionable, or the market mm-hmm. being satiated with that kind of a national tale, I guess. Um, I chose Waverley simply because it is his first novel, I, um, because it's um, a pioneering novel, because it, it helps develop the, the historical novel. And uh, generally, I just I like the plot. Once it finally kicks in, yeah. once you get through volume I mean, one, you go way through volume one. <laughs> You know, which is like uh, a one volume of orientation. Yeah. And then when the plot kicks in, when Edward gets into uh, Edward Waverley, the young English officer of dragoons, when he gets into the Highlands um, and the action really kicks off, I think it was really quite a, a remarkable tale and uh, quite, I think, quite gripping, actually. Uh, I would agree with you. Yeah. I mean, the first section is almost like a test, mm-hmm. if you can get through it. It's almost like, you know... You can imagine Lou Reed making a white noise, and if you get through this, you might actually get yeah. to enjoy it. It, it seems <laughs> yeah. to just be that's the way it reads when, to me. So Waverly is if Metal Machine Music ended with Sweet Jane. Yes, is what you're saying. I think yeah. that's possibly what I'm trying to say. Um, yes, it's the first one, and I, oh, I think I, I really like all three of them. I, I, mm-hmm. I have got a bit of a mm-hmm. soft spot for Sir Walter. I know that's a bit like you know, admitting you Absolutely. like, like prog or something like that. Yeah, it's, it kind of is, isn't it? Um, well, maybe we can we can come to that later well, on and just fight it out. If, if you know, if well, Walter I, gets I nearly went for Heart of Midlothian, I will just and, pull that in there. Yeah, and I have a soft spot for Midlothian as well. I, the reason I went for Rob Roy, it's, I think it's a, it's a rollicking good story as well. Mm-hmm. It's probably not as... Um, State Phoenician as Heart of Midlothian, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. yeah, well, let's move on to another one which I think we all we actually all have the same yes. novel this time, and this is no surprise. No, the private memoirs and confessions of a justified sinner by James Hogg. So, Ronnie, why go for justified I, sinner? Well, I think out of all the older uh, novels that I chose, so the early 19th century stuff, this is the one that's most. I guess most amenable to a modern reader, it has very modern sensibilities, if you like. And I think, you know, if there's one older title on this list that I would recommend people read, it would be this one. Um, simply, it's the tale. I, well, actually, I'm going to I'm going to describe it now, and it's going to sound awful, isn't it? It's like the tale of a young extreme Presbyterian. <laughs> it was a satire of extreme Presbyterianism. That's the thing that kept me away for for years. And when I actually did read the novel, I found out that actually what we've got going on is a, a, an intriguing story. You have the confessions of a young extreme Presbyterian who meets a strange, uncanny figure. And this uncanny figure persuades uh, Robert Ringham, the, the the main character, to commit all kinds of sins and even murder. In the name, that he, well, in the belief that he will be a justified sinner, that you know he can do no wrong, his actions are justified mm-hmm. because he's acting in the name of God. Um, we and we quickly learn that this is a character, of course, is or maybe none other than the devil. 
And I just like, oh, it's just, you know, excellent literary representation of the devil in the sort of Faust tradition, I guess. But it's a really fascinating um, structure, a really fascinating narrative that Hogg sets up because he sets up um, two narratives. There's the confessions themselves and then an editor's framing narrative. The editor's framing narrative um, sort of acts in contrast to the confessions. And I guess, the, the, well, the, why it might be appealing to... A, contemporary reader is because the the, the text leaves us uncertainty over whether we can read it as a supernatural tale whether Robert actually does meet the devil and the devil uh, provokes him to commit these um, these these uh, sins or whether it's all you know it's all imagined whether it's actually a a psychological novel is I think the modern reading is key to probably why we all chose it and why now it is seen as this masterpiece and it, it probably was I mean it definitely was a masterpiece in the time it was written mm-hmm. but we we it shows you the way that the, the changing readership adds new things to these texts because we will look upon that in a completely different way with our now knowledge of the psychological um, dreams all of these things mm-hmm. and the horror genre and the gothic genre Absolutely. and things that, that we understand yeah. um, that's one of the reasons I love it so much it, it's, it's ambiguous you can read it you can read it. I've read it in different ways. I think it's that narrative undecidability. I mean, that's something we maybe associate with contemporary fiction. You know, it, it resists closure. Yeah. And you can't quite fall down on either the supernatural interpretation yeah. or uh, the psychological interpretation, you know. And I think that's something that uh, makes it... It still strikes a chord, I think, with modern readers. Oh, yeah. I mean, in comparison with Scott, whose style is a, a slightly old-fashioned and fussy. Mm. It is, isn't it? You know, you, oh, I mean, yeah. Scott yeah. can't get through a paragraph without alluding to every single book in his library you or know. having a mad character sing. You would say... Uh, no, yeah, Scott book had in his a, library. a good editor, then, you know, it might be more of a, a readable... Well, prospect. I mean, the, Scott is quite difficult for, I think, for the modern reader to, to approach, um, whereas I, I don't think Hogg is to the same degree. I think Hogg no, is no. opposite. And Hogg's uh, text, OK, it was recognised its day, it didn't do so well in the 19th century as perhaps it's done in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Ever since people like Andre Gide came along and rediscovered it as a, as a kind of... Uh, as a classic. Um, mm-hmm. So... Yeah, I think it should be it, it, it certainly is, like, obviously, on, it works on all these levels, the kind of psychological levels and stuff like that, but I think even describing it as that kind of undersells just what a kind of gripping read it is, you know, yeah. and just how kind of pacey it is in a way that uh, Scott isn't necessarily, until he gets to his actual action sequences, you know, uh, you know, it's it's really economical. I mean, it's only, it's only a couple of hundred pages, isn't it? It's That's a true. slim book, you know, mm-hmm. for, for everything that it says and manages to say. Mm-hmm. I think, I, I can't really add that much to what's already been said, but I will say that it is my... Um, favourite kind of horror as well which is where you have uh, people attempting to impose a rational explanation yeah. on these kind of supernatural forces and stuff mm-hmm. like this you know, I'm thinking all right, you know these forces are kind of tied into the folklore mm-hmm. of the country in the way that it's it's almost like a kind of folk tale or something like that the mm-hmm. way that the way that Hobb writes it um, I'm thinking of even in, in films something like The Wicker Man or something like this you know something that ties into something kind of deep and uncanny mm-hmm. yeah. coming out of yeah. the land itself yeah. you know mm-hmm. uh, rather than you know, just a serial killer or just, mm-hmm. you know, a monster or something. There's some kind of deeper force at work. Well, it, it, it strikes on real modern and primal fears. And mm-hmm. it's madness, it's supernatural, and it's, 
fundamentalism. Fundamentalism, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. which is still today, uh, and perhaps more than you know, well, certainly as, as as much as ever. And I guess also modern modes, because you've got essentially a found narrative. We like found footage films yeah. nowadays. Yeah, well, as soon as you say that, because remember, Billy Rich came out and had uh, the, the sort of uh, internet campaign, the viral marketing That's campaign, right. which suggested it was real. Hogg does a similar thing way back in 1823. Publishes a letter in Blackwood's magazine cool. suggesting, yeah. you know, a letter that relates to the the climax of the text, which kind of authenticates the text, but is fake. So if you like, it's a first, it's an early attempt to at that kind of yeah. viral marketing for a found narrative. Nothing so, is new. There you go. Maybe they should just republish it as paranormal activity. <laughs> Absolutely. Just call it that. <laughs> uh, that's going to catch the title too. Um, okay, so I think we're all agreed that's a, a work of genius, and I'm yeah. sure that's going to be in our final uh, five. I think nobody's yeah. going to doubt that. Mm-hmm. Some might say we were hogtied. Oh, oh dear! Like, some, just because I saw the terrible puns, it's all right. <laughs> come on. Right. Well, let's go into Mr. Stevenson, Robert Lee Stevenson, and this is going to be interesting because Ronnie went for two, and it just so happens to be the two that I have won, and Chris has the other. You'd almost think we made this up. I, now the reason I didn't go for Jekyll and Hyde, first of all, well, I, mm. first of all, I, I think well, it's is it a novel or is it? A, Novella, yeah, and then, but yeah. well, I'm not going to get involved in that. I decided to go for the Master of Ballantrae because I do think it's a better novel. Mm-hmm. Um, Jekyll and Hyde? I think I would probably agree that Master of Ballantrae is maybe better overall, but I think just in terms of the impact that yeah. Jekyll and Hyde had and yeah. continues to have, yeah. and not just, again, on Scottish literature, but on mm-hmm. literature, films, just general culture of the world over, mm-hmm. it's like, mm-hmm. it's one of the kind of touchstone reference points for any kind of culture I think again not just in terms of books but in terms of like cinematic representation Absolutely. in terms of the idea of doubling you know whenever anything comes out when of course, you know, it's, it's, it's instantly it's, it's the instant cliche that people go for whenever you know a serial killer emerges or something like this or somebody who oh he was so quiet it's, it's a Jekyll and Hyde figure it's just it's something that's it's become part of like everyday language you know yeah. it's mm-hmm. um, and it is I, I mean you say Master of Ballantry is better that's not to undersell just how good a book Jekyll and Hyde still is I mean yeah. it's not like Stevenson only had one good book in him or something. He's, he's arguably oh, the, the greatest. Of course. You know. could have, many, many others we yeah, could have picked. Exactly. Right. And that so, Dublin theme is in uh, uh, Master of Ballantry as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but, uh, so to say that Master of Ballantry is a better book is no way a, a slight on Jekyll and Hyde. No. no but uh, no, no, again, it. just doing so much with so little. I mean, even, yeah. even slighter than... Uh, than Justified Sinner. I mean, as you say, is there's less than 100 pages, I think, Jekyll and Hyde. And to get to infiltrate the popular consciousness so much with that and really plant this seed of an idea and codify it and, and kind of define how it would come to be represented in fiction for, mm-hmm. for centuries to come, you know, is mm-hmm. is um, is a hell of an achievement. And again, the psychology of it, just to... I mean, it's set in London, but it's so very obviously like an Edinburgh book, you know, and mm-hmm. the way that it kind of speaks to... Explain that of, a little bit more. Uh, I, I feel like the... It, Although it is, uh, as I say in London, the, there's something very the way that he really emphasises the divide between the kind of the the haves and the have-nots, mm-hmm. if you like, yeah. and the kind of the wealthy with the kind of repressed, very Presbyterian sense of repression about it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously that's not a uniquely Edinburgh trait, and it's mm-hmm. not the kind of it's not even a uniquely Scottish trait, but um, it does feel very much informed by his upbringing in Edinburgh, mm-hmm. and it seems that like. I mean, I'm sure you can map the geography of it, and it would it would match up with London actual location. I've never actually sat down with with you know with mm-hmm. an atlas and map stuff out, but mm-hmm. um, even just the kind of the 
just the, the, the descriptions of the buildings feel very much and the kind of divide between the kind of the seamier side of town and the, 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 the rich side of town mm-hmm. feel very new town, old town. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it feels very much... I don't know, again, it's maybe not even something you could directly put a finger on, but it just feels very, you know, steeped mm-hmm. in, in, in Edinburgh, I think. Yeah. You can, you know, going back to private memoirs, you can see, you no. Know, unfortunately we don't tend to say he's a Robert Ringham, Gil Martin character, but you can see <laughs> yeah. the influence that must have been there. Yes, totally. Yeah, came through. And I think, uh, well, you, you've chosen both novels. Yeah. So See a little bit about them both. Again, I think I'd go back to Jekyll and Hyde because of its cultural significance. It has entered popular consciousness. It's, it has, yeah. it's, I mean, I think the interesting thing is the way in which you see contemporary representations of Hyde, um, you know, and Hyde in films, I mean, invariably awful films like um, um, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, and, mm. uh, which yeah. Alan wouldn't put his name to yeah. because it's so bad. And uh, he was in Van Helsing as well, right at the start. And Hyde's this bulked out giant figure in both it's, cases. It's, that's odd because, and also... And it's strange it's, it's, the, and it's this hunchback in Notre Dame as well yeah, in the Van yeah. Helsing. There seems yeah. to be a real, you know, mashing together Bec- of all these. Well, because if you want to do an overreaching scientist who transforms in the 20th mm. century after Stan Lee and the Hulk, yeah. you've got to bolt them out. They've got yeah. to transform into something larger. Yeah. Which but, Moore, Moore does in his comic books. But you go back to the text, yeah. and this is what it's all about, and this is why it's there. I think people should go back to the text because it, there's a real surprise there because... Uh, Hyde is small. always he's small. He's, small. He's described yeah. as dwarfish, yeah. ape-like, small, deformed. It's about shrinking in moral stature, yeah. you know. So um, instead of this Hulk figure, you know, as Bruce Banner, yeah. you've got something really different. And I like that. I like. I think you know, readers should go back and visit these texts. It's very short, and it's it's like when you go back and visit, you know, the sort of pantheon of gothic characters in the in the 19th century you go back to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and mm. you find out the monster is yeah, actually this, uh, actually very eloquent he speaks he mm. has his own narrative he's, he's a, a skilled in rhetoric he's not the silent movie type mm-hmm. character but I think uh, Hyde's one of those char- a similar character and you find there's a lot in Jekyll and Hyde that's really quite surprising one yeah. more thing I will say also I like one thing you don't get surprised with is the ending yeah, and this is a novel that's in the the, the structure of this uh, novella is is very well. It's very intricate. I mean, you've got embedded narratives, letters that can't be opened until Doctor Lanyon's dead, and all these sort of mechanisms trying to conceal one key piece of information. Yeah, that Jekyll and Hyde are the same. Are the same. Yes, which is like we already know this because it's spoiler. Part of it. <laughs> spoiler. <laughs> spoiler alert. Sorry, guys. You know, if you haven't read it, you uh, you already knew it. But I mean, I guess a, a Victorian audience would have been, oh my god, yeah. they're the same person. The yeah. horror. Yeah. I'm going to go. I'm going to go off and die. Oh my I'm gonna, god. Uh, yeah. You know, <laughs> go off like Lanyon and just wilt away and die. Yeah, you know, yeah. from the shock. But it would, we, it would have been a shocking novel. But was oh. it not at the time? It was considered like kind of Stevenson kind of stooping to the level of the penny shocker, the penny dreadful at the time. You know, almost mm-hmm. in some respects, mm-hmm. you know, kind of almost lowering himself to. Oh, I didn't realise that was the that was the reaction. Well, to it. well it, I think it was as one of those series. I can't, I can't remember the specifics, but I mean, one of the things is, of course, Stevenson wrote for the market as a jobbing mm-hmm. offer, and I think that doesn't do his reputation any good in the twentieth century, yeah. the early twentieth century. He's associated as, you know, he's not. He isn't seen as a, in the same way as modernists who don't write for the market. So, and well, he isn't, yeah. Uh-huh. And he isn't. Uh, What's this about notions of readability? <laughs> yeah, well, who would have yeah. thought a book should be readable? Yeah. And I, I think he's also associated with children's f- f- fiction and the Disney adaptations and his stuff doesn't really don't really help. But now no, you know, we're going back and we're looking at Stevenson saying, well, here is a remarkable writer. Mm-hmm. I mean, you look at his later work, the Ebtide Beach of Lesser, these kind of novels that sort of prefigure Conrad and uh, really wonderful. 
Probably, you could argue the and most uh, influential Scottish writer that you know that there mm-hmm. has been in a, in a global. I mean, you could say Scott as well, but I think Stevenson tends to, as you say, has influenced people, some surprising people. Mm-hmm. So let's just say a little bit about the Master Ballantry, mm-hmm. um, which kind of marries this later, perhaps now looking back, we see it's more sophisticated psychological writer with. Uh, more romantic visions of Scotland and and travel and yes, all the kind absolutely. of folks that we think about when we talk about Stevenson. Uh, yes, mm-hmm. um, I I remember uh, reading it um, and thinking, well, this is fairly bog standard, and there's two brothers and the fallout, and mm-hmm. you know, I've read this before. Yeah. But then it's two when the brothers boys. split. It's two little boys and two little <laughs> toys, and away one of them goes, and that's when it becomes interesting because you've got these kind of dream sequences, mm-hmm. and uh, you're not sure again if this is um, a real character or whether there's supernatural involvement. And it becomes something really quite odd for the time it was written. Yeah. Um, so. Ballantry. Well, I mean, what he said. Okay. Yeah. Just an interesting <laughs> time, what really, he said. I can't really you know? add much to that. Okay, I so... No, I, I mean, I could... I mean, it hasn't... I, one of my, my reasoning for the inclusion of uh, The Master of Ballantry is if we had Jekyll and Hyde, I would also have to include Stevenson's better novel, which is the master... Or best novel, in my mind, Master yeah, of Ballantry. So, uh, yeah. Well, we can, we can talk we again. Let's, let's yeah. put a little question mark at uh-huh. these, shall we? And we can... These are a couple of fights yet to happen. <laughs> So, um, we're going in reasonable chronicle. Now, let's, let's look at one of each which um, we haven't, uh, which neither of us have, uh, have got on our wrists, lists. So, let's, uh, Ronnie, start with uh, George Douglas Brown, The House with the Green Shutters, which is a novel I do love. Yes, this is, my, this is my substitute for Sunset Song. I resisted the urge to put Sunset Song down because, I don't know, it's Sunset Song fatigue. <laughs> it's always in the list. It's like the Sergeant Peppers of... Scottish novel, you know, okay. it's like it's also in the top. It's like the list in two thousand and five, the top Scottish book of all time, and yeah. you know. And you're just to resist those. My, things, well, no, I, not really. I, 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 think, I, I think I've been fairly popular. Yes, you okay. Know, or, you know, obviously, what I've done so far. It's, it, it just looked that one. I, you know. So uh, why why uh, Douglas Brown? Douglas Brown, I just think is a remarkable tale of uh, Scottish uh, small town life. It's, it does some things that are similar to Sunset Song. You know, it, it really you get this sort of savage assault on the meanness, the pettiness, and the, mm-hmm. I suppose, the creatively deadening effects of small-town life. And it's just a really t- good tale. Again, it's family conflict. It's this conflict between uh, Guffrey uh, Senior and Junior, you know, uh, um, and uh, a conflict that leads to a very modern tragedy. Mm-hmm. I've given this ending away there, haven't I? I've just uh, said tragedy again. again. Spoiler. Spoiler. Oh, yes. come yeah. on. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, well, it harks back to Sophocles anyway, because uh, George Douglas Brown was kind of interested in these these uh, these influences, and I just think in terms of uh, being um, being a representation of that kind of uh, that kind of society, to me, it's just slightly more interesting than Sunset Song. Yeah. Mind you, I have been reading Sunset Song probably every, every year, year right? since I was about you know fourteen, so it could be fatigue. I don't yeah, know. Okay, um, I agree. It's a fantastic. It's a, it is again. Looking back on it, when did you say it was written? 1901. Mm. A very, uh, it was a very 20th century novel, as you say. I, I love how you get round spoiler alerts by saying, well, you know, it's doing Sophocles. So, yeah. <laughs> so people, if they really want to know, yeah. can either read House of the Shutters or go and look out their own uh, yeah. Greek tragedy. <laughs> um, that's the kind of stuff you get on these podcasts, guys. Yes. Uh, so, well, let's contrast that with Sunset Song, because Chris okay. is batting for Sunset Song. Right, well, I mean, like, 
I, I nearly went for House with the Green Shirters as well, so it's not like I'm pitting them against each other. Uh, I think um, it's weird because they both kind of almost in a way present themselves at first as quite naturalistic, but I think in a way they're both, they both have their own elements of artificiality that yeah. you need to get on their wavelength with before you really appreciate them. I mean, obviously, um, with House with the Green Shirters, as you were saying, it imposes structures of Greek tragedy on this kind of small town saga. And I think if you came into it, not kind of getting on Douglas Brown's wavelength and realising that that's what he was doing then mm-hmm. as it builds to the finale you could seem increasingly overheated mm-hmm. um, and just really mm. misanthropic in its way as well you know really oh, yeah. kind of yeah. it's dark like, yeah it's yeah. like such a reaction to like, I mean obviously it's kind of put, uh, positioned as a reaction to Kaliard mm-hmm. but you know without this kind of framing of, of Greek tragedy you can see it's almost pushing too far in the opposite direction I think it may begins to make more sense with that kind of structure on it. You know, if you have some kind of familiarity with what he was shooting for, Sunset Song I think um, stands arguably as um, the the kind of the peak of Scots modernism, like in terms of when modernism was actually a kind of an international mm-hmm. movement. Yeah, uh, I mean, and people point to Hugh McDermott and his inventing the language and stuff, but I think that in mm-hmm. terms of going going deeper than that and uh, probing the psychology behind it and stuff like that as well, and um, Using it as, I mean, I mean, it's not uh, as as artificial a language as what McDermott was using, but uh, this still very stylized second person, you know, kind of confluence of of various kind of dialects uh, that that Grassic Given uses for his narrative voice and um, the whole kind of the structure of it and the building. It. I mean, if you go across the entire Scottish Square, the the kind of the the moving out from small town. Just like with our from smaller than small town, from like you know, from village to small town to, to city, yeah, and the expansion, the, the, the kind of journey that it tracks from the rural to the urban. Um, I and just again, in this kind of this very unique language that, that nobody is ever really kind of run with, it's still very much Grassic Gibbon's own, I think. Yeah, nobody's mm-hmm. ever really been able to fully replicate it successfully since then, that kind of style that he goes for, because it's not so much even the words that he uses, the rhythm that he uses them mm-hmm. with as well, you know, is is. And the, the second person plural yeah. that and you would do this and you do, you know, yeah. and um, and again just to have like um, the, just the figure of Chris Guthrie has become kind of like so iconic as this kind of totem of strength, you know, this kind of quiet dignity and strength within, mm-hmm. you know, the, these kind of quite squalid surroundings at times, mm-hmm. you know, and and some of the stuff it's almost like not wanting to call back, but it's, it's almost like a Von Trier film or something, you know, you have this kind of this heroine <laughs> who has all these kind I, of psychological. I, I, I see doing a version of Sunset Song. Nice kind of psychological <laughs> abuses piled on her uh, and comes out better for it at the end of it, but. Um, yeah, I think it's yeah. I I just I think it stands as like the kind of crown achievement of Scottish modernism okay. in that sense. In that sense of um, taking kind of existing elements and then elevating them to to high art. I think he I makes a, a good case, doesn't he? He makes a good yeah, case. He, he does make a very good case. And uh, I think in terms of the novel, I, I would agree completely. I would say that perhaps there were some more interesting things going on in poetry in uh, the Scottish modernism of, as you say, when it was global modernism. Um, and we've only got 10 choices so I'm going to take one of mine which I kind of mm-hmm. looked to probably destroy all those who came before him and go for Young Adam by Alexander Trott mm-hmm. now I mentioned it before and some people may have seen the film version but if Scotland can said to have an existential writer I mean I suppose some people would say James Kelman um, but Trocky was all out there he embraced 
what was happening in philosophy, cosmopolitan scum. <laughs> He's the cosmopolitan scum. Lousy beatnik. Yeah, and you know, uh, obsessed with uh, lesbianism and, and uh, sodomy. I think was one of the other. What's the name of the novel? So, <laughs> so, so come on, you want to read this novel? Don't you? This is my man. There's one. Human Dermot hated him. That's got to be a plus for a start. That, that's, yep, so and uh, exactly so. Anyone <laughs> who you calls cosmopolitan scum, come on. Uh, but apart from that, it's um, an amazing uh, novel. It uh, starts off with a body being pulled from the Clyde, and this central character of uh, uh, Joe, who is very dispassionate as this body is pulled out. He, he has no real feelings. There's a lack of any kind of feeling towards what he's encountering. And you realise this happens throughout the novel. This man has no... Um, he seems to have no moral compass and no uh, real... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, he doesn't react in the way that we would expect. A, not, mm. Never mind a hero, but any character in a novel to react. He's completely blank for this. And he's almost always watching, mm. even sometimes when he's partaking in uh, a, whether it's cheating on his friend with his wife or um, going to a court case later on, which he is, we then find out, should be intrinsically <laughs> involved in. Um, he's dispassionate. That's the word. There is no passion. And uh, that is, makes him very interesting. So I think for the first time, you have characters perhaps who are always watching outside. Waverly is a good example who is watching what's going on and through, we are seeing what's going on through his eyes. But there's no doubting that he is um, fired up with passion so much so that he doesn't know whether to go one way or the other. Whereas Joe is just going through life um, and not having to take any responsibility for consequences of his actions. And that in its own way is a, uh, frightening a character to a, to a reader, I think, as as a Jekyll and Hyde where you say, well, mm -hmm. is it psychological? Is he overtaken? Has Is he addicted? All these things. You don't get that with Joe. He is simply going through and not acting as society expects him to. Mm -hmm. um, I think Young Adam bridges the 20th century in Scottish literature. Right. I think it it takes the, the, the early part and the modernist and even a, going back to House of Green Shutters and all this new uh, and pre and post war I mean a very complicated landscape in terms of not just Britain but in terms of Europe as a whole I mean all, all the kind of arguments there were about well should Scotland be on its own or kind of blown away by world war and, mm -hmm. and what happened after that here's someone that's saying like these are these are old arguments it's about the individual and really it's about how the individual chooses to act or chooses not to act or just is in a state of bad faith as Sartre would say in the middle and mm -hmm. cannot act mm -hmm. one way or the other he just is existing um, and I don't think any other Scottish writer including Kelman captured the fundamental ideas of existentialism not just as uh, specifically but as artistically as Trocky does with Young Adam so that's my argument for that being in well fine <laughs> <laughs> okay uh, I like it <laughs> I like it a lot um, but let's move on. We can. This will be interesting when we come to put this together. Uh, if any of us can mm -hmm. uh, manage to fit in our individual choices, because there are others which we all have. I think. Well, there are. Um, so, because I think now um, you have. Yes, we are going to go with. Well, let's go with the Prime Minister Jean Brodie. Mm -hmm. We've all got Prime Minister Jean Brodie. This was another one I thought. 
it's a it is a novel, but it's a short sure. novel. All Sparks oh, novels are short. All Sparks novels are short. And, you know, I had yeah. considered the driver's seat just right. just to be a little bit different, but mm-hmm. um, Prime Minister Jim Brody. I know you. Uh, yeah, I've read it maybe more than any other book on this list, and it's the kind that as I. Every time I read it, I, I find something new about it, which is an astonishing thing for a book that's only 128 pages long. Yeah. Um, I think there's so much in it because, again, it's superficially, it is, you know, I mean, it's the Maggie Smith film, you know, it's this, oh, eccentric teacher mm. has her way with students and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, you, you, all the quotations, you know, all the kind of the, the creme de la creme and stuff like that's kind of infiltrated the consciousness. But then underneath that, there's so much more going on to it. And um, rereading it and, you know, picking up all the elements of kind of fascist allegory and stuff like this, mm-hmm. you know, and, and then, of course, realising that it's set in the run-up to World War Two, you know, and tying in just the way that every kind of line counts and everything kind of comes together. Mm-hmm. And um, I realised that, that, that Marion is beginning to be structured a bit like the novel itself because I'm just jumping about all over the place. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, even just the structure is so kind of unlike anything else, uh, certainly from, from the mid-20th century where it's... There, there's no kind of linearity to yeah. it. Just kind of, it'll, it's almost it's not a stream of consciousness, but no. it will mention a character and then say, oh, but then of course thirty years later she died, yeah, <laughs> or bro- something, you know, yeah. and then Delicious. you know it'll go off and show you these kind of flash forwards and flashbacks, and yeah. it's kind of hard to pinpoint a place where the story actually starts. You know, it's this kind of broad view where you're kind of just dipping in and out of the timeline with details that are relevant to the characters at that point yeah. in time, but still maintaining this strong narrative thread of this, you know these three, four years in the lives of these girls, you know, mm-hmm. under the influence of, of Jean Brody mm-hmm. uh, and her kind of... Because, again, she is the kind of... The first time you read it, you could almost miss the damage that she does to the girls because she is yeah. such a kind of seductive figure. Yeah. And, you know, she's ex- exposing them to the arts and she's exposing them to high culture and she's um, teaching them things that are, are far beyond what would normally be taught in an Edinburgh girls' school in, mm-hmm. in the 30s. But mm-hmm. uh, this kind of pernicious influence that she has on... Uh, their psyches as she goes through and, uh, and this kind of snobbery and yeah again you know this kind of fascism that she breeds in them uh, where yeah. they're separate they're uh, they're better than everyone else mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and you know the whole kind of the walk that they do through through the old town stuff like this where it, it, they're contrasted you know because it is it's such a kind of breezily written novel for the most part because Spar is just such a superb writer that is it it's very seductive and it's very kind of easy to read yeah. and then this bit where they, you contrast that kind of almost kind of easy living that the girls have in their kind of upper, mm. upper middle class lifestyles mm-hmm. with you know it, it's a jolt in the real world where you see the poverty the, the lines the unemployment lines you know the, the, the kids kind of fighting in the streets and stuff like this and the, the real kind of um, deprivation that still existed in Edinburgh at this time apart from this world of you know afternoon tea and stuff yeah. like that yes. mm-hmm. I think well, I mean, what Ronnie was saying about uh, how screen depictions of uh, Jekyll and Hyde of kind of, kind of dilute what the original text was so that film I think I, it's a great film but Smith. it, it yeah. dilutes what the text of the Prime Minister Jean Brodie does when it's actually not really about Jean uh, Brodie at all in a way it's about Sandy and, and, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and what you come to realise is you go to read more Muriel Spark is this she is one of the few writers who has the skill to do that, to jump around, but yet you mm. don't lose it. You don't lose 
where she's going and what she's going with that. You follow her um, yes. in a way that other writers just couldn't pull off, I don't think. Absolutely. And there's a lot about storytelling as well, which I really like. I mean, the fact that she refers to, me, in a sense, Jean Brodie's trying to write the stories or offer the lives of these uh, young girls, the Brodie's set. Yeah. Um, yet there's a sort of wrestle for narrative control, of course, because Sandy Stranger is uh, increasingly inserting Jean Brodie into her own little narratives. You know, this bizarre little uh, story that she tells halfway through where Jean's uh, messing about with a, a character from Kidnapped. And it's that little struggle for power I think yeah. and that, I that's right and the different points yeah. of view that the mm. story would be told differently Jean Brodie's story would be hugely different to Sandy Stranger's too, would be, and you can almost yeah. see that in it as well like, um, like uh, Jackie Brown almost can start yes. the story again and go through it <laughs> um, and what in, in many modern Scottish novels this obsession with what teaching actually is comes into it as well mm. is teaching a prescriptive well you have to learn your three R's and you learn mm. R is there something more where somebody gives through mm. their passion and through their knowledge tries mm. to inspire and yeah. in this case we find inspiration is not just mm. dangerous but ultimately deadly yes um but it comes back to something like it would come in, in a disaffection um mr alfred ma the importance of 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 a being inspired and typical muriel spark she turns that on its head and said, yeah, but this is also very, this is a power which is very, very dangerous as mm -hmm. well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Sparks always turning these things on her head. Mm -hmm. um, would we say that would get into our final five? I, th I think so. I, I, think I, I think it probably will as well. Yeah. I think, well, there's, we're pencilling another one in. Not pencilling, um, let's pen it in. I think it's the first women right we've got as well. Uh, it is. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping it won't be the last, but we'll, oh. we will find out. Mm -hmm. So at the moment we've got Hog, Private Memoirs, Confession of Just the Sinner, and the Prime of Miss Jean Brodie. Not bad at all. Mm -hmm. So next up, I, I think we'll go for another one, roughly at the same time, which we all have, and it's uh, Mr. Alistair Gray and Lanark. Mm -hmm. um, groundbreaking uh, novel. Mm, yeah. um, in fact, Ronnie, if you want to say something about Lanark. Well, Lanark, I mean, I, mean, I think it's uh, Alistair Gray's masterpiece, you know, it's it's constructed over decades. I believe he starts in, what, the 1950s? Yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's published it, it started out, did it not, yeah. with the, the mid-sections, books two and three, as a kind of almost, well, autobiographical kind of I'm not sure. Fictionalised account, didn't I'm not it? sure it's, it's all the way around. You would expect it to, but yeah. I'm, I'm not sure if it's all the way around. Because you have this, this structure where you're, you're, you're modulating or you're travelling between these two different uh, worlds. You have the dystopian uh, cityscape of Unfank, which the novel starts off in with this character, Lanark, who can't remember who he is, etc. And uh, later on we move back to um, a very real Glasgow in the 1940s, 1950s, and a, a buildings roman, I guess, you know, a novel, novel formation. It really is a portrait of an artist as a young man. It's about a young chap, Duncan Fall, who goes to Glasgow School of Art, where Gray himself studied and becomes an artist. So it, you have these different elements. It moves between fantasy and realism. It moves between, oh, I suppose it means moves between fiction, metafiction. Um, and it's all accompanied by, of course, Gray's remarkable, wonderful illustrations. You mm -hmm. know, he's very much uh, a, an integral part of the story. Um, in the traditional Blake, you've got these, you know, yeah. these uh, fantasy species and things like that. I mean, it really is just a. It's, I mean, you can see its influences, it, it, mm -hmm. but you can also see that this is a, a hugely um, individual and, I mean, it really still is a unique piece of art. The, 
there are people who have been influenced by it. I think we're maybe going to talk about a couple of them later. But you pick this, still to this day, if you pick a copy of Lanark up and you just have a customary flick through it, mm. and you see, as you say, these wonderful illustrations, you say, well, hang on a minute. It goes two, three, four, no, is that right now? Yeah. Let me get the two, three, four, one. And then the structure, and you think, well, immediately you're like, that, what's going on here? Mm. There's not the subtlety of Spark where she jumps around in tiny places. Yeah. This is right there. Now I'm going yeah. here. Now I'm going here. These different worlds mm. of, of Glasgow and you unthank and mm. and there's also this couple of sections where the editor comes in or the, 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 the well Gray himself Gray himself you know, comes into the novel. Seems to be something you know, that you did in the 19, early 1980s if you were writing fiction because you know of course you get it with uh, Martin Amos did it as well and. I think it's money and uh, that's right. We will later, perhaps uh, someone rushed does it in satanic that's verses, but I don't know if Grey's the first to that. No, down, but you have this, I just this wonder, kind of postmodern thing, yeah. self, you know, self-reflexive. He's certainly the least insufferable out of the three of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably right. Um, so Lanark for for you, Chris. Mm-hmm. Lanark for me. Well, I read it in my summer between uh, high school and university, and I think it took me more or less the entire summer on and off. It felt it's a proper epic undertaking. It was the kind of thing I couldn't really read all in one sitting because it was just so overwhelming. Um, I had to really be in the right frame of mind for it because once you're in there, you're you're in Gray's hands. You know, it's not the kind of thing you just read on the bus. You know, because it will disorient you and it will completely um, it's kind of set you off balance for the rest of the day. Um, but I think almost as much like I, I was drawn into it, I think obviously by the kind of the more fantastical elements and this vision of Gla- wait, this parallel universe version of mm. Glasgow where um, you know it never gets light and you have these kind of um, processing plants beneath the you know mm. the, the hospitals and, and things people like that turn into dragons. people turn into dragons all that yeah, kind of thing you know, holes opening up in the ground in the like yeah, just, just a little well you know it depends as we look out the window yeah. here <laughs> like, mm, yeah. he was onto something yeah. well I think that's part of the genius of it as well is that for all it's fantastical elements it never you never lose sight of the fact that Unthank is essentially still Glasgow yeah. I mean yeah. like the cover image on certainly in the edition I have and I think in a lot of them is in detail from his uh, Grey's Picture of Cow Cadden's. Yes, oh, it's, yeah, a, yeah, it's yeah. a Cannon Gate edition, and yeah. that's right in its own. Yeah. And the genius uh-huh. of it is that mm-hmm. it could be Glasgow or Unthank that he's representing because yep. it is this dull, grey, these kind of grotesque, Absolutely. distorted figures at the front. Um, mm-hmm. And to, to realise that, to see that potential in Glasgow, I mean, again, we talk about kind of wider influence, but I think with grey, that can't be understated yeah. about just how many doors he kicked down with that, about being able to see Glasgow. And- and he does say in the novel himself that he's, you know, he's trying to write about Glasgow. Yeah. I mean, it's a city that hasn't been represented. You know, yeah, right. in the same way, say, you know, Joyce's Dublin or something like that. So he tries to do that, and yeah. you know, I think he achieves it to an extent. It's, but it, to do it, he has to, you know, go into this strange dystopian yeah. well, fantasy world. You say that, but yeah. I mean, the, 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 one of the bits that sticks with me about it, it isn't even all the kind of the fantasy world. It's just a little detail, like it's in the Duncan Thor sections, but he goes mm-hmm. into, I, I think, it's Sucky Hall Lane. And finds a tree grown, and it's little details like that that stuck yeah. with me through it. You know, mm-hmm. just that you would then be able to go, and if you wanted to pinpoint the exact location where this tree was growing, mm-hmm. you know, and just the yeah, idea. Of the I agree with you. It's the Duncan Thaw yeah. stuff, which I actually prefer. Our, we've spoken previously on uh, mm-hmm. on our banks podcast yeah. about yes. the, the the splitting of the science fi banks and the the, the realist bank, mm-hmm. um, and here you have it in one novel. Now I, I love the, the novel as a whole. I think Lanark as a whole is an amazing piece, but I do prefer the Duncan Thorns. I just I like that yeah. uh, connection that they give us. Uh-huh. I, although unthank there is a, there's a connection as well, but it's kind of uh-huh. one one yeah. place removed yeah. I don't yeah. know I don't know like, if I would state a preference for one over the other but I just think that in terms of making Glasgow 
a, a place that can be represented in art. You know, uh, with this, the the, the Duncan Thaw bits maybe mm. are more important for that than than the fantastical bits because it's actually using Glasgow and not changing it. Mm-hmm. You know, as opposed mm-hmm. to transmogrifying it into this fantastical world where you know all these kind of grotesque things happen. You know, it's keeping it as a place where grotesque things happen every day. Um, but never losing that playfulness either. I mean, you talk about Grey coming in when he lists, you know, he has his list of plagiarisms and stuff like this, you know, at the end yes. and stuff like that. And he, you know, he meets himself and it, it's, a, it's an epic, epic book and a huge undertaking mm-hmm. and a massive cultural achievement, but it's still a hugely enjoyable book as well, just with a great sense of fun about it. Definitely. And, and it is, as you say, it's epic, but it's about really one man. Yeah. <laughs> and it says a lot about yeah. Alistair Gray himself and that he can write an epic novel but not it's, it's not about Scotland. Yeah. It is about Glasgow in a sense but it's really about this one yeah. man and that man is him. <laughs> um, and it's not to say the stuff that came after it has great worth because it has. I mean, Ronnie had said earlier um, Poor Things could have been in, in here and mm-hmm. Janine 1982 could have been Absolutely. in here mm-hmm. but just for the scale and the, the sheer bravado of coming out and, and sticking with it over all these years yeah. and yeah. I would imagine always knowing he was eventually going to do it and get yeah. it out there and would probably do mm-hmm. well um, I think Larrack has to be in the final five right we're getting there we're getting there after quite a wee while <laughs> so I think now our choices begin to uh, split up a little bit mm-hmm. I think oh no there's one which again both you. well let's talk I've I would, I'd like always, as always, to talk about James Kelman. Now, mm. I've gone for a disaffection, but you've gone for his first novel, his debut novel, The Bus Conductor Hines. So talk a little um, bit about Hines. I think, well, again, uh, he would go on to equally great work, I think. I mean, obviously, like, Kelman's bibliography is full of uh, just incredible novels, but uh, The Bus Conductor Hines, for me, again, is the first one I read, and it's the one that's uh, kind of stuck with me the most. I think it's the one I've reread most out of, mm-hmm. out of Kelman. And it's not out of, as it might be with some later ones, an attempt to understand it a bit more. It's just because I genuinely enjoy spending time with the characters. I think mm. it's his warmest book, and it's mm. it's it's or arguably his warmest mm. book. Uh, I, I hear that. Sorry, that was, no. I'm just thinking okay. about Kevin yeah. Smith Boy, which is perhaps, oh, yeah, well, it, perhaps yeah. it is. Perhaps. But Rye was that. Well, it has a warmth that he didn't Sorry, regain was... until Kieran Smith Boy. Then I'll rephrase it. But um, he. Uh, I think what's fascinating about it is just how kind of, um, just how much he commits to it being a slice of life. You know, there's no sense of rhyme or reason for it starting when it does or mm-hmm. finishing when it does. He's just coming into this man's life, staying with him for a, a few hundred pages, mm-hmm. and then leaving again. Classic um, Kelman, yeah. Yeah, and it it really really irritates me when people read the bus conductor hangs and say it's about nothing <laughs> because yeah. it's it's about everything. You know, it's it's a man's life, and it's not. A representative couple of days. It's not like oh well, you can extrapolate yeah. this to his entire life. It's not meant to be metaphorical. It's yeah. just this is what happens to this man over a period of a few weeks, mm-hmm. and I'm going to describe it in detail. I'm going to treat him and his family with respect, mm-hmm. with the respect that they deserve. I'm going to treat them as human beings. I'm not going to talk down to them. I'm not going to condescend. This is people. This is how they live their life, mm-hmm. and, uh, and it, it just gives you a little insight of what's gone before, and a little what about the possibilities that may happen. But it does no more than that. Yeah, um, it doesn't hold out any great hope. It's uh, going back to Young Adam. Um, Heinz has got more passion and more uh, responsibilities and all these things. Okay, sometimes he feels trapped. Again, he feels unable to act. He doesn't. 
you know, he can't paint the room even though he's been asked over again. He can't choose between moving uh, outside the city or staying in the city or going to uh, a nicer place in the yeah. city. All of those things, which he has all these choices and he feels that for whether it's financial or whether it's psychological, he is stuck in a sense. Um, and that's what Kelman's looking at. He's looking at why, why is there an inaction here? Um, mm. And it, it, But he leaves you. He doesn't condescend to the reader, never mind times, and say, you know, you'd make up your own mind when he sits out your own. Yeah. I think just as a picture of, um, just as a picture of family life under Thatcher, I, I mean, obviously Kelman's very political <laughs> understatement. <laughs> <laughs> Mild understatement. Um, but it's never... It, it's never strident in, in the bus conductor Heinz it's just it's kind of there in the background this kind of threat of unemployment and the threat you know not enough money coming in for working class families and what have you and they're, they're living in a single end and things are tough all over but um, again the kind of the the warmth and the, the way that they make do and just the little moments like the little moments between Heinz and his son and yeah, um, you know really beautifully observed relationship in fact all of them the relationship between Heinz and his wife as well between Heinz and Sandra and the kind of the tenderness one minute and the kind of disgust the next mm-hmm. and um, between Heinz and his, his co-workers and the, the whole stuff about like the shop stewards and the unions and stuff like this coming through and it, but again it's never the, the politics never overwhelms the, the humanity or yeah. the characterization or anything. It's just kind of there. In he's the showing you the situation. He's not yeah. telling you this is how you should feel yeah, about it. Absolutely. And uh, I think he's written books that are as good, but he's never written a better novel, I think, mm-hmm. than okay. The Conductor Interesting. Well, I've gone for a disaffection, mm-hmm. which uh, is in part of the Glasgow novels that he wrote. But stands alone in a way because uh, the central character of Patrick uh, Patrick Doyle isn't it I think yeah, yeah. he um, is a teacher again going back to Jean Brodie who another one who is f- feeding his pupils propaganda it seems when he's at his ha- happiest that he's saying you know um, this is the way that society views not just you but it views your parents and you should be feeling like this and, mm-hmm. and that seems to be when he, he, he is at his happiest And but but again Kilman doesn't say this is right or this is wrong it just looks at the character and his life at that point as a whole and makes allows you to make judgments whether this is a good thing or a bad thing it's interesting to me because he has a good job he is essentially a middle class character who has difficulty relating to his family because he has gone to university and now has a um, good job in the school and is getting a decent pay and can barely relate to his father anymore. There's a wonderful scene where they're uh, they're doing the dishes together and, and, and it's painful to kind of read because you're just there's obvious affection and bond between these two men but they've stopped communicating and then there's another scene that goes back to see his brother uh, one of my favourite scenes where he the brother calls him middle or alludes that he is a middle class wanker and his reaction is well actually that's very much out of order actually How do, you know this real middle class well spoken language comes in and then it finishes I mean for fuck's sake because yeah. uh, it, it just exemplifies this uh, struggle which is going on inside Patrick Doyle because he doesn't know he has lost identity and this bizarre uh, 
idea of these pipes that he finds. He finds these um, set of pipes and it's never explained whether they're actually musical instruments or just pipes, but he goes to try and play them. So there must be some kind of musical instrument mm -hmm. and he becomes obsessed with them. And it's almost like, well, this is the artistic side that he's put aside to do his work, trying to get out. And I, there's all sorts of reasons I love it. Part me thinks it's the character that Kelman treats of his own, the central character that he treats most harshly because Kelman saw that that could have been him. If he had decided not to concentrate on the writing, perhaps he would have ended up at Patrick Doyle. I've no idea whether that's the case, but that's my feeling for it. Having said that, I have great affection for a busking Dr. Hines as well because mm. it was the first Kelman I read and it changed the way I thought about what was possible in terms of writing. Mm. So we'll, we, mm, I think if I was to, I, I wouldn't mind saying Conductor Hines. So, well, let's move on to one again, which we all three have, and we'll let Ronnie talk about it first, um, since we were banging away about Kelman there. The trick is to keep breathing by Janice Galloway, which I think quite surprisingly, perhaps we all have on our lists. Yes, and whereas things that you might expect aren't on our list, like train spotting or something like that, yeah. which we may come back to if we have time. Uh, Galloway, yeah, trick is to keep breathing. I think the award for most unusual typography here. Um, it's it's really a peculiar text because if you try to describe it, it's, it's essentially uh, a narrative about a woman recovering from. Um, the death of her lover. Mm -hmm. You know, she's had a mental breakdown. It's a, it's a book about depression, mental ill health. It really is. But you never see like a book on such subject matter being quite so compelling. It is really, it's alternately funny. It's um, you. You have a central narrator who's got a, a very knowing and some at times ironic view of life that actually keeps you reading, keeps you going for this text. And it, it's just a wonderful text for the insight it gives into into uh, Joy's life and Joy's mind. And it's a very important novel for that very reason. And it is, it, it, it's great. I mean, just the way in which it, it plays with all these different kinds of discourses. You have, you know, she'll, she'll pastiche mag women's magazines and the kind of nonsense that you get in the recipes and uh, tips for a successful life. She'll pastiche uh, dramatic texts. She will incorporate all these different signs and lists into her text. And then at times you have the typography or actually Joy's thoughts seeping off the page or... Uh, leaking into the margins mm -hmm. and it's just you know it, it's just a yeah. peculiar little text I, I, yeah, I, I, I wonder I wonder uh, what Janice Galloway feels about it now it's my experience mm -hmm. that often writers um, and I've talked about Alan Bissett about this on the last podcast often writers when they go and revisit early stuff they think oh I'm being too showy there or I'm being too oh, I need to come I mean to be simpler and you know writing is all about becomes more about being, you know, mm. short, that Hemingway thing about mm. you know, the short sentences and everything. Mm. But actually, what a lot of readers like, they like the showiness of it because they're never going to write it. Yeah. So they like the showiness of it. They like the, you know, Alistair Gray putting in his, mm -hmm. um, himself into the novel or, or I think the trick is to keep being this. It's a very confident novel for, uh, for someone who'd, I think, one before, is that right? Or was this her first? Was this a debut novel? This was her first novel, wasn't okay. it? Okay, she she'd maybe she'd written some short stories yeah. before, but collection of short stories. So, and I, I I wonder if it's that freedom again. You're not sure whether anyone's going to pick it up and read it, so you can try all these things that you've read about that you've been, and I think it's my experience as writers go on, they maybe try and get rid of that now. Maybe that makes for better reading. I'm not sure, but in terms of the trick is to keep breathing. Mm -hmm. It all means something. It's all there for a reason, as far mm. as I can see. And the fact that it deals so beautifully and brilliantly with depression at a time when not many people 
Okay, they might have been writing about it, but they weren't being so open about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. It makes it uh, a great, uh, a, r- a truly great novel. Mm-hmm. Chris? Yeah. Uh, I don't really have much to add to any of that, but I think, again, just the, the control that she exerts over every aspect of the novel just can't be understated because, as I say, it's not just the prose, it's not just like the way the, the text spilled off the margins of the pages. It's even down to things like the divisions well, it's not in chapters but even the, div- the divisions between the kind of the text breaks with the little O mm-hmm. symbols separating them but clearly that, that comes to be like the mouth of our lover gasping for air yeah. as he drowns you know yeah. uh, so even spoiler. little details like oh. a spoiler sorry well we've it's not no we did yeah. 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 spoiler yeah. is yes. drowning yes. death by drowning I think yes. you know what when no. we're doing these yeah. things as long as it's not been out in the last year I yeah. think we're allowed to talk about it yes. yeah but yeah no just again as you say the confidence of of someone on a debut novel just having that level of like, exerting that level of control and making sure that every it's part of the novel right? like works together in you know in harmony like that and brings it all together it is, it's almost like a conductor or something you know the way she, she brings it all together uh, all the various parts mm. and kind of synthesizes it into something greater than the sum of its parts mm-hmm. you know overall I mean obviously those parts are, are great and fascinating mm-hmm. all by themselves but the experience of the book as a whole I mean I think it's it's almost um it's so kind of very much you're, you're so very much in Joy's head that it can almost be quite hard to get into at first and I think it took mm-hmm. me a couple of attempts to really fully get into mm-hmm. triggers to keep breathing and get through it because it is so keyed into her own kind of psyche and mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. empathetic and um, it does very much put you in, in, in the mind space of someone re- recovering from this kind of trauma but just the fact that she's able to do that to the extent that it can be as hard to get in you as it can be to get through to someone who's suffering from you know mm-hmm. that that level of depression in reality is is a kind of an achievement in and of itself. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, and I, th- I recommend I recommend all of these novels, but really the tricks to get breathing. I, I do think if if anyone wants to have an understanding of just how difficult life can sometimes be, mm-hmm. tricks to get breathing is a great uh, example of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to let the two of you talk about Banks because you've both got a Banks novel on it and I haven't Um, Mm -hmm. again I couldn't Mm -hmm. so uh, Chris has gone for The Bridge yes which I'm interested about okay well we talked about it on the Banks podcast and stuff and I think The Crow is probably my favourite Banks book Mm -hmm. but uh, I think The Bridge is probably his best uh, on a kind of purely Mm. technical level uh, or purely um, you know I mean, obviously he can't be objective, but just in terms of like the scale of his achievement and the scope of his achievement, I mean, obviously is as we, I, I don't want to rehash too many what what too much of what we said in the Banks cast, but um, mm-hmm. the way that his relationship to Lanark and the way it takes that and then adjusts it so that it's not about a man growing up in the fifties in Glasgow, but uh, moves that to a man growing up from the west of Scotland to the east of Scotland in mm-hmm. the eighties and everything that implies and his shift in politics and the shift in mm-hmm. LA is kind of is transit between classes and uh, everything else that he ties into it and the gameplay and, and I mean we talked about it all yeah. in the Banks cast as well but it's again mm-hmm. such a confident novel and it weaves it all together so much all these kind of disparate elements and all these kind of jumping about in time and uh, all these kind of various settings and uh, to be able to maintain the narrative thread through all three and bring mm-hmm. in all the aspects of like the barbarian with his Glaswegian dialect and um, and tie it all together and create a portrait of a man through these three very different narratives that all kind of come together and combine uh, to give you a full a full picture of the central character mm-hmm. yeah. um, is something that I think is, is well arguably Banks is kind of crowning achievement but uh, mm-hmm. as, I I, say, as I say I, I would go yeah. with that for several other Banks yeah. as well I, yeah. I, I think 
perhaps you're right, but I want to hear the argument for the Yeah, I mean, it is a difficult one because I think, you know, I would like to see Ian Banks in there. I don't think he gets, he, still, I don't think he gets enough recognition. Yeah. And well, it, it, it was personally difficult for me because, um, I don't know, Ian Banks for me, he was, he was the kind of thing he went and it was a record shop buy, you know, the kind of book that you'd all see in record shops. Yeah. This startling monochrome cover, you yeah. know, um, and you go and. You get for a fiver and four. Aye, so it was factory and then, uh, you know, walking on glass and. Espadare mm-hmm. Street and the bridge, they were all wonderful. I'd, I mean, I'd selected Crow because I think it is his, it is his best novel. Simply, not. I wanted to see him back in there and okay. I just wanted his, his best novel. I mean, in terms of the novel itself, it's a, it's a family saga, it's a murder mystery, there are these elements. It's um, it's just a, a, a terrific read. Um, Okay. Yeah. Right. Well, good arguments for Banks there. I'm not sure whether he'll get in, but we'll we will find yeah. out. So, mm-hmm. um, we're coming up to time reasonably soon. We've got to well, let's look at some that which we haven't uh, looked at so far. So, Chris, um, actually, we pretty much covered. Uh, yeah, we've, we've, we've pretty much covered all of yours. Um, um, apart from we'll leave yeah. we'll leave your final one to okay. the very end. <laughs> Ronnie, we missed out the very earliest one. I'd like you to say a little bit about it. Is Tobias Smollett, the expedition of Humphrey? Yes, I was looking for one from the eighteenth century, and I think this is you know this stands uh, head and shoulders above. I've read it. Uh, I've always been uh, meaning to. In fact, I've got a copy somewhere. Yes, good, jolly good, jolly good, jolly good. Um, well, seventeen seventy one actually. I mean, this is the oldest one on on my list and everybody's lists. Um, it's on the face of it is again another one difficult to describe. It's a, a kind of dysfunctional Welsh family travelling around Britain in the 18th century, which, you know, you're all going to rush out and buy now, I guess. Um, I love but, a bit of d- dysfunctional Welsh family. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, it, it just gives you an insight into Britain at the time. It's, um, it's Also, it's a masterly study of character. It's not really about action as the critics in its day recognised. It's, it's about character. It's about characterisation and these different... Uh, these different characters in the novel, the misanthropic Will Square, Matthew Bramble, his uh, sex-starved sister, uh, Tabitha, um, is, is, is deaf and you and niece who are travelling with them, and also Win- Winifred Jenkins, the, uh, the, the maid. And the, basically, Smollett takes a mode that was very fashionable at the time, the epistolary travel journal, uh, well, not journal, sorry, the epistolary travel fi- uh, writing, and the idea is that you would send letters back home which would detail every stage of your journey. And he takes that mode, but it, it, what he weaves into it is multiple letter writers mm-hmm. who all reveal their own character, their own foibles through the way in which they write and what they write about. Mm-hmm. And what you effectively get is multiple perspectives. Right. And this is an 18th century, so the smallest experimenting <coughs> with the novel form. It still hasn't settled down into first-person narration, yeah. you know. So you get, you know, like, d- different accounts of, say, like, the pleasures at Bath mm-hmm. from Matthew Bramble. Or from um, or from a, a Lydia's niece, very contrasting reports. So I mean, it's that kind of uh, you know, it's, it, uh, yeah, experimentation with uh, different with multiple perspectives. Okay, and I think it's a really interesting novel I, for its day. Um, it's one which I have been meaning to read for some years, and uh, <laughs> it's, it's still on my bookshelf unopened. I get it. I mean, it's, it, it is a difficult one to recommend because it, it, it isn't plot centric. It is yeah. about character. It is about the originals that they meet in their travels, the, or the, what Smollett called originals, people who are quite grotesque or quite um, really quite eccentric. Um, and you know, okay. if we had something in from the eighteenth century, as I say, I think no. it would be that. It's, it's published the same year as Henry Mackenzie's Man of Feeling, yeah. which we spoke about earlier as possibly not not the best. Okay, shall we say Scottish yeah. novel? Um, so okay. on, on those grounds, um, you know, I don't know how it pits against Kelman. I have no idea. <laughs> it does right. come. To, it does come to Scotland and travel about, you know, but uh, just not in the same kind of way as the bus conductor. Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. Well. 
horse drawn carriage rather than a bus for starters. Yes, yeah. it's the horse drawn. The only ones I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the only ones I think we haven't touched on are both on my list. I'm going to quickly finish off. I think that's right, is it? And one yeah. on Chris's yes. as well. Which ah, one? Yeah. Um, Ron Butlin's The Sound of My Voice. Similar to the trick is to keep breathing in that it's dealing with an illness. In this uh, situation, it's alcoholism. It's all written in second person narrative. It is um, just an astonishing undertaking to write in this way because when you're reading it, you don't really... Um, it t- a bit like a, a Joyce character in Tricks to Keep Breathing, it takes you a while to understand what's going on because you're having to get through these layers of, of, of understanding. You um, read the, the, the first page and feel, oh, here's someone whose father has died and then you realise that actually he's sexually assaulted someone on this day but you don't get that until you've read it a couple of times through and there's there is this these layers of understanding and then of course with his drinking you're not sure whether there's a fantastic literally fantastical scene where he sees this uh, snowman melting in the kitchen and he really needs cooling down and he goes runs forward to this uh, snowman which you know is in his imagination or at least is part of the delirium tremors that the man is suffering um, and you can see his life falling apart and again it's about someone eventually reaching rock bottom mm-hmm. and the physicality it gives to alcoholism uh, is I mean even, even if you've never had a drink you're going to feel for this the way he talks about it you know having to swim through this thick thick liquid and and the trick is to keep breathing, trying to, you know, to keep breathing as this is going on. The way he deals with his children, who he calls the accusations, which is a brilliant like, touch. The way that he... Uh, I believe that's the proper collective term for children. <laughs> an, an, an accusation, accusation of, of children. children. Yeah. Uh, so, and the, the horrible bit where he's mildly flirting with his secretary and then, of course, as he gets drunker, this becomes awful. And and then the, the voice cuts through at the end and, well, I don't want to spoil it for you, but... Uh, I always recommend if I bore people and I've probably bored many people listening to this podcast I would say The Sound of My Voice is one of the greatest Scottish novels um, ever uh, written but maybe other people don't agree the final one is I wanted to have something from the 90s Uh, of course Train spawning isn't on anyone's list again. A shock, and it's not. This isn't us being deliberately obtuse. I hope people understand no, that we're not doing this so vocal go. How I'd, dare they? I'd, I'm a huge fan of train spawning. I'd like to see you know, like in ten years' time, if we come back and see if train spawning's still around. You know, still even mm. on our spectrum. I don't know if it's off its time. But I, off its the time, the more I go back to it, the, the less I see in it. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I must admit. But the, the, yeah. the influence of it on its time was just astonishing, and Absolutely. really did. I'm sure you had the same experience. People mm. who didn't really read books again, going back to that, you maybe bought you maybe bought a copy of Screamadelica and you said yeah. I'll have a copy of Trainspotting as well. Yeah, um, massively important. Massively important uh, novel. You know, and, time. and the way in which it's, it seemed to de- define a new generation, not a Scottish generation. I mean, okay, it's a novel written, in, mm. uh, you know, uh, rendered mostly in uh, East Coast dialect from the eighties, but it, it defined a sort of new sense of Britishness I mean, cool Britannia. You know, the, sort mm. of the, the, the things that were going on in the nineties. Sort of Although that was more the thing. film. I, well, I guess, but I mean, it did filter into that. Yes, you know? it did. And, yeah. Um, you know, yeah, it was important then. It's just, I'm not sure how important it is mm-hmm. now. And I would like to see in 10 years' time, you know, Welter has. Well, my you know, final speak. choice mm-hmm. wasn't actually uh, Welsh. It was Alan Warner. And it was the second of all these demented lands. And the only reason for this is just, I think it's an, an astonishing piece of writing. It's a follow-up, in a way, to Morven Collar. But mm-hmm. she is never mentioned. Mm-hmm. 
Um, it's like I, it begins, I am crossing, she goes to this small island which you have to know Warner's whole uh, canon, I think, to realise that it's off the west coast of Scotland and all these things. And she meets these characters, none of whom have proper names. It's all a, a nicknames which they are given. Um, and it's he and she, and you're never sure who's being talked about. Um, there's a scene where it seems to be under drowning underwater and, and get, being saved. Some people really hate this book. They really do. Um, I think, and it's a, it's obviously Warner trying something completely different, and I think he succeeds, but the fact that after he went to do The Sopranos, which was much more in the style of uh, Marvin Collar, but just, you know, more mm. voices, um, mm. suggests that maybe he didn't particularly think it was a huge success. Um, mm. If anyone's a fan of a Marvin Collar, then they should read these Demented Lands. Um, mm. It's a it's a great piece of writing, mm -hmm. um, but one which is hugely underrated, and I don't expect it to turn up on our final five. Mm -hmm. So, talking about which, <laughs> we have Hog, yes. Private Memoirs, Confessions of a Justified Sinner. Mm -hmm. We have The Prime of Misty and Brody, Muriel Spark, mm -hmm. and we have Lark by Alistair Gray. Mm -hmm. We're all happy mm -hmm. with those three. Yes, we're happy. This is where it gets, get, the sleeves get rolled up Absolutely. here. Do we go for... Well, we've all gone for Janice Galloway too, just to keep breathing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, any problems with having that in the final five? Mm, it depends who she's up against. If there right. is another choice, because, I mean, I, I would be very, very surprised if we had a final five that didn't have Stevenson in it. Yeah. And well, that's going to be a problem as I, well. I think, yeah. Well, I uh -huh. think Stevenson... Yeah, okay, this is going to be difficult. This is where it does get difficult. Do we need Sir Walter Scott in there? Have we spoken about him enough that we can say... Because... We spoke about him quite eloquently, and yeah. then, then we undermined that when we got to Hog. Yeah. yeah. Or I did. Yeah, I, I'm happy for him not to be in it, I have to say. I don't mind if Scott isn't in the top five. I would rather have Stevenson. I would too. Yes, it's so, Scotland, we don't need Tories in... <laughs> yeah, so you see, no Scott, no Scott. Yeah, we don't need the, none of that. Right, okay. But we have done proportional representation here, I think, <laughs> across the board. Um, so it's Stevenson, so is it Master Valentry or is it Jekyll and Hyde? Ooh. Now, see, Chris and I can sit back and let you decide because you get them both. Ooh. Yeah, your call. I'm afraid it is, Ronnie. Um, uh, yep. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm actually going to go for Jekyll and Hyde. Okay. Grinds his teeth annoyingly. Okay, no, like I said, I love it. It's a great story. It's hugely influential. I think it's perhaps been overly influential, um, but, you know, mm -hmm. never mind. But okay, mm -hmm. we're going to have Stevenson. We're going to I don't think anyone can really complain about that, can they? Mm -hmm. Well, so, could, yeah, they will, and I'm sure they will, and I will as soon as we finish this and go for a pint. Well, that's, uh, you know, that, was, that was the criteria for choosing. We have to go for a, for a pint soon, yeah, so I may as well come this, up. This, this will continue, uh, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> uh, way into the afternoon. The strange case of Dr. Jekyll, to go at his full name, and Mr. Hyde. And yes, if it gets people to go back to original text, I'm quite happy with that. I know people who will hit me for saying that, but, you know. So, yeah, he's one yes. of them sitting right beside you. <laughs> <laughs> So now we have a final spot, and this is going to get interesting. I'm going to pick one novel out of mine that I would really want in, and I want you guys to do the same that's not in already. If I was, if we were in a bear pit, you know, fighting for our lives, I would go, I want Young Adam, and I want it in there. Okay? Ronnie? Oh, I'd, we'll go to Chris first, because I'll have to look okay. at um, I would go for the bus conductor, Hines. Right. Mm. 
Oh, he's here. That's a low blow. That's a low blow in this beer pit of ours. I would go for Ian Banks. I'd, definitely. Uh, I think Banks should be in there. Okay. If he isn't already. He's no. not already in there, Ronnie. Right? He's not already in there. No, that's I, right. I could be swayed to the side of Banks. Ooh. Oh! I could be persuaded to go for Kelman. Oh, I, I really, I think Kelman. I really would think yeah, Kelman has yeah, to be in there. Yeah. I understand. I mean, I mean, you know how much of a big Banks fan I am, but I think in terms of great Scottish novelists, didn't you write your thesis on Kelman? I'd, and and also on Banks, <laughs> as you well know, as you well know. This is why it's so difficult for me because. What about Ian M. Banks? No, I can't have an M. Let me just Alex throwing a name no, in there. I want to play the game. Rankin. <laughs> yes, we're not. We're not no. No, let's not get down there. Right. Oh, goodness me. How are we going to do this then? Shall we toss a coin? Well, no, 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 because I tell you what, this is what's called horse trading, I believe. Yes, the, horse the trading. coin of destiny. No, no, not the coin. Before there. we go for the coin of destiny, let's say I am willing to go. Busking Dr. Hines, Kelman. Okay. But you are choosing different banks novels. Ah, I see. Well, yeah. I don't know what that means. But, but that, well, what that means is I'm happy if Chris is willing to take back his vote for Busking Dr. Hines. It's a kind of coalition we've got going on. <laughs> yeah. Look, yeah. these things are going to be a horrible compromise. If yes. it was a pure fist fight, uh-huh. I would, you know, be slugging away for it. If it was a pure fist fight between Ian Banks and James Kelman, who would win? Oh, Kelman. Kelman. Ah, but Ian Banks, like, he likes, he likes a drink. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Whiskey. You don't go for the drunk in the corner. You go for the lean, mean. Yeah. You know. You certainly mean. Uh, well, Possibly. Let, let, look, let's not badmouth any of Right, guys, we're going to have to come up. We've got Hog. I think we're, you know, and Hog trumps Scott. I think that's great. Yeah, okay. We've got Spark. And, I mean, there is another option to this, really. And I think that's right that she's there. We had to have Astor Gay. We had to have Lang. I think we all agree with that. We have gone for Stevenson. I think we probably did need Stevenson there. We do actually all still have Galloway. And we all love it. Mm. But I... I oh. mm-hmm. So are we really... Because we're going to have to have come up with some kind of... Uh, we're going to have to toss a coin here. Well, we'll let, let understand what banks you're batting for. Because I say, I'm quite happy to go Kelman, a bus conductor, Hines. I almost had that in. I'm happy to go with uh, the Pro Road. <sighs> If it comes down to it, but I'm just as happy to go for the bus conductor Hines. So I don't. And you're sticking to your guns on uh, Crow Road. Absolutely. (sighs) Right. Okay. I I don't know if, in good conscience, I can put the Crow Road ahead of Buskin though. No, I see. I I, let's let's talk about this more. I think you know we're talking about. You know, would, would would Ian Banks ever win a Booker Prize? Well, that's not a good example. That's a terrible example. That's <laughs> making me going the other way. Given the current climate. Current, current climate. Would, he, yeah. would James Kelman ever win one? But would he win the Literature Prize? Um, yeah. yeah. I, I just um, feel that Kelman's a more important writer than Banks. Mm-hmm. I think so too. I think we're, we're not ganging up in you here, like, Ronnie, because I do no. love Banks. I mean, I, I would say that like, the pro and, is... The Crow Road, I would go for because uh, it, it's a personal favourite, yeah. but it's very, it's not yeah, so much that it's, it's a well, I mean, it's a very well written book, but I think in terms of being like a great book, uh, Kelman takes it for me rather than... Well, rather than and I'd just like to point out, although Dr. Young is our guest here, and we are so glad he is this here. This is what they do to guests. No, 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 this yeah. isn't. He has actually got, <laughs> already got four out of four on his, oh, we all got four out. No, you see, he's got ah, four out of four on his yeah, list. As yes, you okay. do too, I might add. 
Okay. Right, so, I'll concede. So I think I'll concede. I'll concede. I'll concede. So it's my call. I'll yeah, concede then. It's Alexander Trucky, young Adam. No, 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 it's not. It's not. It's it's going to be James K. I'm, I'm happy. It's Kelman. Bus- and it's, and it's bus conductor Hines, okay. you know. But these—that's the way these things always go. They become horrible uh, compromises, and that's sorry, why so, so, committees. So am I five for five? There, you, do, you do, can, I, do I win this podcast? You win this She's podcast. <laughs> but and that's only because you nearly started crying because Von Trier wasn't in the film. Yeah, <laughs> right. Do you know what? I think we all need us. Even Chris, who doesn't drink, we all need a yeah. stiff drink. So. Uh, Thanks once again for listening. Thanks, real great thanks for getting out of his sickbed uh, to Ronnie Young. Thank you very much. Thanks as always to Chris Ward. Cheers. Thanks to Ian for uh, sitting here and listening to all this stuff. And thanks to me, Ali Braidwood, and we will uh, we will be with you soon. Thank you. Mm-hmm.